Father, we thank you for Jean. We thank you for being with her in her preparation. We ask that you would bless her, that you would speak clearly through her this morning. That we might be people who are counted amongst the wise, who hear and respond rightly to your word. Guide us, we ask. Amen. Amen. Well, good morning, everyone. And I have to say, it is a real privilege to be preaching this Easter morning. Wow. A man and his five-year-old son were driving past a cemetery and they noticed a large pile of dirt next to a freshly dug grave. And the little boy said to his daddy, Look, Dad, one got out. (laughs) One has indeed got out. Christ is risen. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Those three words, they are the foundational truths of our faith. And this morning, we're going to look at John's version of these momentous events. Now, people sometimes wonder why the four gospel writers record slightly different things about what happened over Easter. To help us understand this, perhaps think about the home of Winston Churchill, Chartwell, which I expect many of you have been to. In the house and studio, there are many, many paintings of this great man, each depicting him in a different situation with different people. One with President Roosevelt, one in a family gathering, one of the man at war in his uniform, and another at rest in a garden in Switzerland. They all show the same person, yet give us a different slant, a different idea of who this man is. Similarly, each of the four gospel writers report the tremendous events from their different perspectives. These differences were illustrated hundreds of years ago in beautiful manuscripts, both by the monks on Lindis Farm on Iona and also in the Book of Kells, which is in Dublin. They are based on a verse in Ezekiel chapter 1, verse 10, which is describing a vision of living creatures and God's glory. The verse says, Their faces looked like this. Each had of the four had the face of a man, and on the right side each had the face of a lion, and on the left side the face of an ox, and each also had the face of an eagle. So the manuscripts illustrate Matthew revealing Jesus as the human face of God, giving us the revelation of God in the presence and person of Jesus. Mark's Jesus is depicted as a lion, which suddenly appears without warning, rather like the great lion Aslan in the Narnia stories, who suddenly appears from over the sea exactly when he's needed. Luke's gospel, Jesus is symbolized as an ox. So Jesus is the bearer of burdens, a symbol of divine strength and the king of the domestic beasts. And lastly, John's gospel is illustrated with a high flying eagle, hurrying to the heights, borne aloft on eagle's wings to proclaim Jesus as the word of God. And again, another character from the Narnia books reveals this different aspect of Jesus. Farsight, the eagle, can fly so high and see so keenly that he can survey all Narnia as he wheels above. So I felt drawn to John's account of the Easter events 
and to John's Jesus, the high flying eagle who sees everyone and everything. The three synoptic gospels tell us the story of Jesus in the horizontal dimension. They describe the geography and history of Israel, but John brings in the vertical. Jesus is above and beyond the earth. His place is with God. And his very first verse said, he was with, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. So John's portrait of Jesus is on a cosmic scale. The spiritual above is contrasted with the physical world below. But after soaring like an eagle in the divine heights, Jesus swoops down, breaks through the barrier that separated us from God, and is born into our world. The eagle has landed. You knew that, didn't you? (laughs) He who knew no sin became sin for us and died the appalling death on a cross so that we can be reconnected in a wonderful vertical relationship with God the Father. And because the eagle sees the beginning from the end, from his high-flying perspective, the death on the cross is actually where the means whereby the son can gloriously return back to his father. And God the Father, Jesus the Son, the Holy Spirit, see what happens in this world. God saw what happened to his people Israel, as he said in Exodus 3, I have seen the misery of my people and heard their crying out. I am concerned about their suffering, so I have come down to rescue them. I have seen the way the Egyptians are oppressing them. We sing at Christmas, love came down at Christmas. And God goes on to say in Exodus 19, On eagles' wings I carried you and brought you to myself. Rather like the eagles in The Hobbit, who rescue the dwarfs and Bilbo Baggins from a band of goblins. But on the day we describe as Good Friday, the eagle's wings are clipped. He is bound and restrained and murdered. And the suffering and the pressure of his sinless humanity in becoming a sin offering for us was too much for his physical body to stand, and he died. And so during the rest of that Friday and on into the second day, sometimes known as Black Saturday, the world waited with bated breath to see if the eagle can escape the bounds of death and hell and return to soar in the heights again. The disciples had absolutely no thoughts of resurrection as they huddled together in a room behind a locked door. And the women had no thoughts of resurrection either as they tearfully and bravely start off as dawn begins to break through the darkness, carrying the spices to perform the appointed rites on his body before it began to decompose. John's account tells us it was Mary Magdalene who went to the tomb, while the other gospel writers mention other women as well. Frank Morrison, who set out to disprove the resurrection in his book, Who Moved the Stone, came instead to faith 
and belief. And he points out Mary's inclusion in verse 2 of the word we. She says, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb and we don't know where they have put him. So it was likely there were other women with her, as the other gospel writers say. Mary, the wife of Cleopas, Salome and Joanna. Women together for safety and decency's sake. So John is giving us here an eyewitness account, probably from Mary herself. She saw with her eyes that the heavy stone blocking the entrance had been rolled away. And she went running back to the room where the disciples were huddled in fear to bring them this amazing news. And now it is the turn of Peter and probably John. They both run as fast as they could, but John reaches the tomb first. Again, sight is emphasised. And he bends over the low entrance to the tomb and looks in, seeing only the strips of linen, but no body. Then Peter arrives, and we can imagine him puffing with the exertion, his mind racing. And he too saw the strips of linen and the burial cloth. And then finally John goes in, and we have these wonderful words. He saw and believed. Yet after three years of being with Jesus and hearing his teaching and seeing his amazing healing and miracles, they still didn't connect the things he had said and his prophetic utterances and the things he did with the reality of his words in Matthew 27. After three days, I will rise again. St. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 15 of his categorical conclusion based on the evidence. If Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. But, and surely this has to be the biggest but in the whole of scripture, Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. The novelist John Updike wrote the truth of the resurrection in a poem. Make no mistake at all, if he rose at all, it was as his body. If the cell's dissolution did not reverse, the molecules re-knit, the amino acids rekindle, the church will fall. So death was reversed. And within weeks, Jesus, the high-flying eagle, ascended back into heaven. And this band of scared individuals were filled with the empowering Holy Spirit. St. Augustine put it like this, You ascended from before our eyes, and we turned back grieving, only to find you in our hearts. So the disciples are changed from deepest gloom to radiant joy, from cowardice to courage, from timid disciples to powerful witnesses. And the church has not fallen, but continues to rise and proclaim the truth of Jesus' love and resurrection. In the meantime, Mary is hanging back, hesitant and afraid. And while the disciples go home, she stands outside the tomb crying and she summons up her courage and it's her turn 
to bend down into the low entrance and look inside. This time, she sees two angels and has a conversation with them. And then she turns and saw Jesus standing there. And she thinks he's the gardener. And he asks her this significant question, who are you looking for? It's actually an echo of the question he asked of Judas and the guards in the Garden of Gethsemane the night he was arrested. Who are you looking for? And she replies by asking if he knows where the body of Jesus is, as if she could carry away that body on her own. And at that point, Jesus speaks her name, Mary. And her eyes are open and she recognizes who he really is. Now, Jesus does seem to have chosen a very unlikely person to be the first witness to see him alive. Not only does Mary have a history of demon possession, but her evidence as a single woman would never stand up in a Jewish court. Yet Jesus chose Mary, a woman, to be the first person to see him and be given a mission to go and tell his disciples. In fact, Jesus calls them my brothers to tell them he is returning back to his father, to my God, and to your God. Yes, the high-flying eagle will return back to his father in the heavens. And Mary obeys Jesus and goes to the disciples announcing, I have seen the Lord. John's resurrection story shows us that Jesus is as much in control as he always has been. He appears when he wishes to, to Mary in the garden, to the disciples in the locked-up room, later on to the disciples when they've gone back to their old way of life of fishing, and his eagle-like eyes could see the fish below the surface of the water, whereas theirs were blinded and couldn't. And Jesus' eagle eye sees far into the distance, and he knows what kind of death Peter will die And he knows what will happen to his beloved disciple, John. One of the resurrection appearances of Jesus was especially for the benefit of a man who was full of doubt, dear old Thomas, who had said, unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. He demands to see Jesus for himself. And a week after the resurrection, the disciples were again in a locked-up room, and Jesus suddenly appears before them, offering first of all his peace, which I bet was much needed. And then turning to Thomas, he says, Put your finger here. See my hands. Reach out your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. Jesus still bears those scars today, seated as he is in glory. He has taken our humanity back into heaven with him. And those scars are to him a permanent reminder of the days and years he spent confined in our humanity, confined to sharing life on this planet, a reminder of the suffering he bore for us. And good old Thomas can only respond to the tangible proof standing before him with the words, my Lord 
and my God. Hallelujah indeed. And here Jesus links seeing with believing. And he says to Thomas, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen, yet have believed. And that's where we come in. Because this is our opportunity to look and see and believe. Of course, we cannot physically stand in front of that empty tomb. We cannot physically see Jesus in the garden or in the locked up rooms with the disciples or on the beach by the seaside or on the road to Emmaus. Yet John saw and believed. Mary saw and believed. Peter saw and believed, as did all the disciples, and especially Thomas. And well over 500 other disciples saw him. They all saw and believed. Yet for us, it has to be the other way round. If we believe the the, the accounts of the sightings of the risen Christ from well over 500 people, our response surely can only be to turn towards him with the eyes of faith. And for us, yes, believing by faith comes before seeing. Blessed are those, said Jesus, who have not seen and yet have believed. And John ends chapter 20 with the words, Jesus did many other miraculous signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are written. What we have been given is enough. They've been given to us to help us believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, and that by believing we may have life in his name. Yet perhaps this morning we may feel we're not really seeing Jesus anymore. And if we cannot see him, perhaps it's because we are standing in our own light, directed away from God, with our back to him, perhaps. And if we face away from God, then his light is shining on our backs, not our faces. And then naturally, from our perspective, all we see in front of us are shadows and darkness and difficulties. If we truly want to seek and see the Lord as Mary did, then all we have to do is turn around 180 degrees. It's not that difficult. It's only half a turn. But it does take desire and decision But it means as we turn to face the light, to face Jesus in all his glory, that our difficulties and darkness will then be behind us because we're facing the light of God. And as we turn to face the light of God's countenance, his light will shine on our eyes and in our faces and we will be changed Our hearts will be lightened. Our awareness of God will be heightened. Our faith will be deepened. And we will be open to him showering us with his blessings. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. 
So as we turn towards him, as Mary did, and believe, then our eyes will be opened and we will see Jesus. We will hear him call our name and we will recognize the risen Lord for who he is and for all he has accomplished for us. So it's as we believe that then we will see and recognize it is the Lord. And like Thomas can make our full confession, my Lord and my God. So the word who is God at the beginning is now acknowledged as God at the end. John has taken us from the heights of heaven and brought us down to the depths of the earth and deep into hell and back up again. And the eagle has returned to his nest in the bosom of the father. And we in our turn can rest in full assurance that the eagle's eyes, who see the end from the beginning, will continue to be on each one of us, his people. Just like his people Israel, who he said, I will carry them on eagles' wings and bring them to myself. And there will be times when God will renew our strength like the eagles, as he says in Psalm 103. And there will be times when God gives us such strength and power to do his will that we will soar on wings like eagles. We will run and not be weary. We will walk and not faint. On that first Easter morning, Jesus asked Mary the most important question. Whom are you seeking? And this morning he asked that question of us. Who? Are you seeking? And if our answer is like Mary's, that we want to see Jesus, then in your imagination, look up. See an eagle flying high above, soaring on the thermals, guiding, encouraging, encouraging us along the path, calling us to turn and believe and see. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Hallelujah. Amen. 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 Thank you, Jane.